everybody welcome back to another episode of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations for Modern Life and what a special episode I've got for you today and if you've been a fan of this show some of the stuff this amazing guest is going to talk about is really going to hit home because uh, you will also see where I've learned a lot of the stuff that I talk about and use in the show comes from as well. Um, it's been a huge influence on my life. I think his work is absolutely amazing. And this interview is an hour long, right? It is absolutely fantastic. And we cover so many topics. But just uh, one small apology. Um, that is that because it is so long, my Mac, unfortunately, was not powerful enough or have enough memory for me to put all the effects and stuff that I normally do on the voice to, to make it sound really in your face. So I do apologise for that, but it, it's, you know, it's still very clear and uh, more than audible. So guys, enjoy. Here's the interview with Dr. John Martini. Okay, Dr. Martini, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Firstly... Just, uh, I know I will have name dropped you once or twice throughout some of the episodes, but do you want to just give us just really, really short, I often don't like being asked this question because it can entice, entail so much, but just a really short introduction as to, to who you are and what you do. <laughs> well, I do four things. Uh, I teach, I research, I write, and I travel full time. And I've been involved in basically those four things, particularly the teaching and researching and writing now for 51 years. And, and so anything to do with maximizing human awareness of potential, anything to do with the involvement of human beings and the achievement of something deeply meaningful and inspiring to them and helping them empower their lives and to empower all areas of their lives so they don't have a limped life. Brilliant. Okay. And I first discovered your work, um, I think it's around like 2018. Um, I, and listeners on this show will know because I use my personal experiences to help give them sort of ideas to apply to their own lives and different perspectives, help see their lives from different perspectives. But I kind of got thrown into this course of events from life itself, which made me kind of, so firstly, adjust my values, actually. Um, I was uh, just if you like an arrogant fitness professional all about like the visual like transformation of clients and what have you um, and I kind of went through some stuff that made me realize actually you've got skill and a position on this planet to make people happy um, it changed my values actually as well like creating like happiness and seeing that sort of um, became like my highest value and then life threw me through some more stuff that made me need to understand some of the workings of firstly my mind and then it realized uh, it gave me a lot more to actually help the clients I was working with too and that's suddenly I then discovered your work and it was just like all these light bulbs went off Okay, and I'm sure like the listeners will, will see some of this as we go through because they'll have obviously heard the background of some of my stories that I've talked about in the past. But it was actually after I discovered your work that then went back to firstly like sort of the ancient Greeks, reading a lot of Plato and stuff, but then that's, that's how I actually came across like, Marcus Aurelius as well. Um, and it was very strange in reading that because it, it just... It made, just made sense to me. And, you know, I've had a lot of the listeners sort of asking in, in the past how I got into stoicism or what have you, or um, for, even someone asking for me to do a talk on stoicism. I never actually considered myself to be a studier of stoicism as such. It was simply that these texts had made sense to me. Um, 
How did you firstly get get into what you do, and then how did that kind of lead into like appreciation of like philosophy? And it doesn't, you know, you can expand on that as and how you like. <laughs> I was a long-haired hippie surfer dude in Hawaii at age seventeen, and I'd been surfing and living on the North Shore in a tent, and I nearly died. And in the recovery of that, it led me to a health food store, which led me to a yoga class, which led me to a speaker at a yoga class named Paul Bragg. And in one night, in one hour, this one man with one message really got to me and inspired me to think that I could overcome one of my biggest challenges in life, which is speaking and reading. I had dropped out of school and was a street kid. And I was told in first grade that I would never be able to read, never be able to write properly or speak properly, not communicate effectively, and probably never amount to anything, never go very far in life. I had dyslexia and a speech impediment. And I had a deformed arm and leg, which made it difficult to write. As a result of that, listening to this man speak, it inspired me to believe that night for the first time in my life that I could overcome these things, these challenges and become intelligent. Never thought that was going to be possible. I was good on a surfboard, but I wasn't somebody I read. I had never read a book from cover to cover. That night I saw a vision, which has been painted, and it sits in my office today, of me overcoming that and becoming an orator and speaker and knowledgeable. So that night, after that night, I decided that I was going to figure out a way of doing that and that led me to flying back to the mainland and hitchhiking back to Texas where my parents lived because I was living on my own from 13. And they encouraged me to take a GED, which is a high school equivalency test. And this Paul Bragg told me that if I had learning problems, just say to myself every day that I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom, which I did, which I didn't know how that was going to help, but I did it. And I guessed and passed a GED and had me a high school degree by guessing, literally intuitively just guessing. Don't know how that happened. And so I tried to go back to school and I thought that I was going to guess the same way and somehow miraculously pass. But when I ended up taking my first college class or junior college class, I got a 27 not a 72. <laughs> and uh, I was really distraught. And I, all I could hear is my first grade teacher saying in my head that I'll never read, write, or communicate, never mount a thing, never go very far in life. And I remember driving home crying, and I lost the vision at that moment of becoming a teacher. And I thought, I guess I'm going back to surfing because I can do that. And I came home and I curled up in a fetal position underneath this Bible stand at my parents' house, the sunken living room. And my mom came home from shopping and she saw me there and she said, what, what happened, son? She had not seen me cry since I was young. And I said, I blew the test. I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I'll never read, write, or communicate. I got a 27. I needed a 72. And it was humiliating to, to, 
see all these names at the top and there was no names until way down at the bottom at 27 so I was really distraught I was the only kid in elementary school that didn't have a star in his reading class everybody got a star for every time they read a book I wasn't able to do that so my mom said something to me that really made a difference she said son whether you become a great teacher and philosopher and travel the world like you dream whether you go back and ride giant waves, which you've done, or return to the streets and panhandle as a bum, which you've done. I just want to let you know that we're going to, my, your dad and I are going to love you no matter what, what you decide to do. And it kind of gave me permission to just be mean. I was loved for who I was. And when she did that, my hand went into a fist, and I looked up and I saw the vision that I saw that night, which I have here. I have a picture of it, a painting in my office. I can show it to you. And... Uh, and I said to myself, I'm going to mass this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm going to mass this thing called teaching and philosophy. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across the planet. And I got up and I hugged my mom and I went into my room and I got the dictionary out. And I started memorizing 30 words a day. I would write the 30 words, recite them in a sentence, say the sentence... 20 times, repeat the meaning 20 times, and repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. My mom, who was a crossword puzzle person, she wasn't educated, she didn't have even a high school degree, but she had crossword, and she loved words, and so she tested me on 30 words a day until my vocabulary grew to 20,000 words in the next two years, and I was now passing school. I just started to devour everything I could get my hands on, and one of the things that this Paul Bragg said to me he said that there are universal laws that are relatively unviolatable, and then there are human laws which are violatable. He said your life becomes more legacy-oriented and made a bigger difference if you follow the universal laws, not just the human laws. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. So I wanted to pursue what a universal law was. So I looked up universal law. It turned me to natural laws. Natural laws, reading that, led me to Aristotle and led me to different things. And then it led me to what was called the Logos. The Logos was the reason and order of the universe. In the process of doing that, I realized that the Logos was dispersed and fractured and fragmented into all the ologies and disciplines a human being could study. So then I made a list of every known discipline and ology that I could find in the dictionary and the encyclopedia. A big list. Thousands, I think, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I didn't find thousands, but I found a 250 or so. And, um, you know, this is uh, astronomy and physics and math and the yeah. disciplines, geology. And so I made that list, alphabeticalized it, and I made a commitment because I believe that a PhD would read about 100 books. If you calculate all the books and all the semesters and everything else, about 100 books. So I made a commitment to read 100 books in now 300 plus disciplines to try to get an understanding of the most universal laws that would stand the test of time so I would have a body of knowledge that I could rely on so when I taught something it wasn't fluffy it wasn't trivia it was something deeply meaningful I then learned in the pursuit of that that there was a lot of great polymathic teachers philosophers Nobel Prize winners and things that were where I was getting the information and so that led me to study 
the lineage of all the Greek philosophers and the Eastern mystic philosophers and even Japanese and Chinese philosophers and and you know to try to stand on their shoulders. Anybody that had polymathic influence, anybody that had um, a, a real cons- dedicated pursuit of knowledge, I was trying to devour their their works and summarize it, condense it, and that's why writing. Reading and writing always go together to me. I read and write every single day of my life. Yeah. And so that's what led me to that. And I wanted to have a body of knowledge that was more universal. You know, one of the laws that I didn't cover was the law of the one and the many. From the one comes the many, the many comes the one. Now, if you look at radiation, you see a point source. It goes from one point source. It goes radiating out into the many. And you have gravity that goes from many and it gravitates to one source. And if you're in uh, an, what do you call a monarchy or a democracy, if you go too far into a monarchy, there tends to have a revolt. If you go too far into democracy, you tend to have chaos. And so they try to have somebody that rises out of it to lead. And the law of the one to many. When you're dating many, you're searching for the one. Once you get the one, you're wondering about the many. The law of the one to many is in chemistry. It's in physics. It's in mathematics. It's in every field. So I want to find the universal laws that I could build a body of knowledge with that I could teach to give people, my students around the world, the opportunity to, to be stable and to create something that lasts. Not a, not a whim, not a fantasy, not a trend, not a, you know, a fad, but something that was classic. So I've stood on the shoulders of great giants in every field, all the Nobel Prize winners, all the Fermi Medal winners, and any anybody that's done something that's made a difference in the world that's contributed, I've been devouring. And I've been doing that 51 years now. November will be 51 years. And still carrying on, of course. Yeah, Yeah, I'm still <laughs> carrying on. I'm still doing it. And I'm still writing. And I found that if I write and I organize and I write books, which are now the 300 of, if I write books, it helps me organize my knowledge. So I write every day and I read every day and I speak every day. I do podcasts every day just to accelerate that. And I'm just as inspired today doing that as I was when I was 18. So I'm very grateful for finding my calling and my mission in life. And I try my best to help other people find theirs. Perhaps also really grateful for the teacher who said that you would never be able to read or write or amount to anything. Um, Because this could segue into something you talk about a lot, values. (laughs) I, I, I never got to see her after first grade. Well, I saw her probably until fifth grade or fourth grade, I think. And the, I, the only way I made it through the school was to ask the smartest kids questions, which I'm known for questions today. <laughs> so that was perfect. Yeah. But the lady I never got to thank, except in my own mind, just closing my eyes and saying thank you with tears. I said, look, if you had not said what you said, and it wasn't, she wasn't derogatory. She was doing what she felt was true. I couldn't read. Yeah. I couldn't I, I was, I was, I had to wear a dunce cap in first grade with Daryl Dalrymple, this other kid who was a bit challenged. So I'm very grateful for that because if I hadn't had that, I probably wouldn't have been thirsty to, to overcome that. And a lot of kids when I was in school, they just took schooling for granted. They wanted to party. I, have, I, I did my partying in my teenage years. The day yeah. I met Paul Bragg, the party was over. <laughs> now my life yeah. is the party. My life is... Yeah. Uh, if your vocation and vacation aren't the same, you're missing out on your life. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. I'm, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to do what I love for a living. Um, it obviously brings its own challenges and stuff, but then that can lead us into talking about stress and you stress and what have you, thriving challenges when you go through it. But another, another thing that was one of the most prominent things you talk about is voids and values. Now, just going back to, to what you just said, but relate to myself, I learned this through you. I didn't understand what was happening at the time, but when I was at school, I actually um, got bullied a lot because I got the worst acne towards the end of school and I got the, the worst acne. By this point, um, I'd actually started sitting near the front of the class and being quite interested in what I was learning. I, I just got, got really bullied for it, mainly because of my appearance. Couldn't get a girlfriend or what have you. And I know now that that's why when I suddenly got this bug for like weight training um, and you know, got really into that in my early 20s and suddenly started getting attention from girls and stuff it became a huge like value to me like the confidence and everything that brought to that void created that value I know like my mission into like understanding the mind and working more in that way was actually following a relationship which I don't want to sort of Put, put blame on anyone say manipulation but let's, let's say it's a toxic relationship right and I realized I was a shadow of myself by the end of it and I kind of wanted to understand what had happened to my mind throughout that time so one of the things that I learned from you is the actual direct link between those things by means of like you how you would describe it voids creating values and obviously that's exactly what you've just sort of mentioned happened to you but perhaps you can expand on that a little bit let's say you meet somebody and you are conscious of their upsides and unconscious of their downsides and are infatuated. If you do and you put them on a pedestal, you'll minimize yourself relative to them. And you'll have an anxiety and fear about losing them because you're attracted to them. Anything you're attracted, you fear of loss. You fear the loss of them. Yeah. When you do, you'll minimize yourself and you'll be too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you and you have a deflective awareness and a disowned part a dismembered part, which disempowers you. If you resent somebody mm. and you look down on them and you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides, you'll tend to puff yourself up and be too proud to admit what you see in them is inside you. Even though you have it, you'll be too proud to admit it and you have a deflected part, a disowned part again. So anytime you put people on pedestals or pits, and minimize yourself or exaggerate yourself, you just lost your authenticity. You're now the imposter. Yeah. You're putting on a facade. You're like a, 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 an octopus that's changing chameleon-wise to match the personas and settings that you do. And now you fear the gain of that person. You fear the loss of something you infatuate with. You fear the gain of something you resent. And now you're living in anxiety. You're impostered. You're disempowered. You're deflecting and disowning a part of yourself, which leaves you empty. You can't judge people without feeling empty. That emptiness wants resolution. And so it drives you, as you go through life, to attract people into your life of all your disowned parts to eventually teach you to own those parts. And your path of most efficiency and effectancy, which is your highest value, is the most efficient and effective pathway to fulfill the greatest amount of voids to the greatest amount of value. And the fulfillment of that value, we call love. We're doing something we love to do. And when we do, we realize that nothing's missing in us because the parts we thought were missing weren't. You know, there's been sh sh shown for centuries, philosophers and religious writers, I think it was in Romans 2, 1, it said, beware of judging because the very thing you judge, you do the same. 
I found yeah. out we only resent people on the outside that represent parts of us on the inside that we're ashamed of, dissociated from, putting on a facade of pride to avoid facing. But these people are coming yeah. into our lives, pushing our buttons, which are our disowned parts, to make us face that and to finally own that. And if we don't, it'll keep happening, right? It'll keep happening. <laughs> we keep attracting our disowned parts to teach us how to own the parts and to love those parts. Even our children are expressions of it genetically. The same thing for admiration. We're too humble to admit it, but we have it. There's nothing missing in us. Hmm. And I've taken people by the thousands and shown them that whatever they judge, admire or despise, they have. And at first, they don't believe it. They think it's a disowned part, so therefore they're seeking something, and they're feeling empty instead of fulfilling the realization that there's nothing missing in them. Fulfillment is the realization nothing's missing, and emptiness is a feeling that there is something missing. So our emptiness drives our values and therefore dictates our destiny because every perception, decision, and action that we make are based on those values. So, yeah, it's yeah. a path of our, our, our efficiency. It's called the path of maximum simplicity, the path of maximum efficiency, or the path of light. Mach and, and uh, the Mapertius, the mathematicians, described that if we live by that highest value, we are most efficient. Can we, can we just, sorry, can we just quickly recap and with a quick description from you? Um, I know I've done it in previous episodes, or what you mean by values, just a really basic thing, just to put that together. The thing that is most important into our life, the thing we want to import into the void to fill our lives. So the thing that's most important in life, like in my case, teaching. I yeah. love teaching. I feel like there's so much I want to learn and so much I want to share that I can probably spin that into the last day of my life and still not reach all the people I want to share with. Mm. So there's a, there's a, and the more I learn, the more I want to share. So it's an infinite game. Yeah. There's no done. You know, some goals are in time and space, but a purpose is through time and space. You don't get done. You just keep fulfilling it. You keep inspiring to do it. So it's whatever's most important, whatever's highest on your value, whatever's highest in priority, those are just different words for the same thing. The thing you yeah. want to import into your life that feels empty that you want to import and bring in to fill. And of course, then we have like a hierarchy though, don't we? Like I, th I think you've described it before, like we each have a unique fingerprint of values. Yeah, our, our hierarchy of values are unique. Um, yeah. You know, if I look at my values, my highest value is teaching. I do it every day, literally every day. And my second highest value is researching writing. So if I have, if I'm researching writing and somebody calls me and says, can you do a podcast? Can you do a teaching? I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to go do a teaching. <laughs> but if somebody calls me up and says, Hey, would you like to go in for a hike or something? Or you want to go to dinner somewhere or go to a party or something like that? I'm probably going to pass it by unless I think that the individuals there are going to be extraordinary and I'm going to learn something. Mm. Then I'll hang out with them because they're, I get to teach or learn. So if I look at my decisions, my decisions are based on that. And nobody's right or wrong about their values. That's what people have to get. There's no right values you need and you're wrong with your values. This is the illusion that people are caught in. They're, they're, they're caught in a universal value system which has been proven by for centuries that there is no such thing. It, it, it just doesn't exist. It's individualized. Mm. We're the ones that give meaning, as Kim says, to, the, to our reality. But in, in, I have a low value on cooking I haven't cooked since I was 24. Nothing. Zero. I have specialized cooks. 
that take care of my car. You made me feel better about not driving anymore, actually. I, I haven't driven a car in 30, <laughs> almost 34 years. It's been seen through 34 mm. years. Because anything that required any motivation on the outside, I've delegated to people who would love to do it, specialists. Yeah. So I've got drivers and I've got cooks and I've got a pilot and I got a, you know, captain in for the ship and I got it. I got everybody. I got a clock changer. <laughs> I, I I told my girlfriend. I said if I have George Clooney make love on my behalf and delegate that to George Clooney, would you still love me? She said I'd love you even more. Brilliant, brilliant. And I think like one of the great things there is like um, to just touch on like what 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 actually happens when you don't live by your values. And let's. I want to come on to epigenetics a little bit later, so perhaps leave leave that side for now. But what happens, like, um, yeah, with regards to mentally, like, if you're not living by your values, and then if you could, like, just kind of explain that, but also link it with you touched on motivation, why you might need motivation in that that case. The difference between motivation and inspiration. Anything that requires motivation is low on your values. If somebody has to reward you to do something or punish you if you don't, it's extrinsically motivated instead of an intrinsic calling. And I'm, I, I, anything that I require reminding to do or motivation to do, mm. I delegate. That's just a mm. rule. So I don't do anything except teach, research, write, travel, because those are the things I spontaneously do that nobody has to remind me to do that I absolutely love doing. And most people don't yeah. realize that they can live a life of inspiration doing that. They're not going to have a life of inspiration and gratitude if they're constantly having to be motivated to do things. So I'm not a motivational yeah. speaker. I'm not going to rhetorically persuade somebody to do something that's not inspiring to them. I will educate them on how to live an inspired life. I'll educate them on how to structure their life and delegate things. I'll educate them on how to do what they love and become remunerated for it so there's a sustainable fair exchange and there's an expansion of service with it. But I'm not going to force people to say, you need to do this, you should do this, you got to do this, you have to do this. I'm not going to use imperatives on people because it's futile. Anytime you try to get somebody to live outside their highest values or try to get you to live outside yours, you have futility. And you're in the reason there's futility is because it's a feedback mechanism within you to not go in the direction of inauthenticity because your identity, your ontological identity revolves around your highest value. Your teleological purpose revolves around your highest value. Your epistemological pursuit of excellence and mastery of, of learning is around your highest value. So if you pursue that, that's where you're going to excel intellectually. That's where you're going to excel as far as energy levels. That's where you're going to sell as far as service and business. I mean, you you just it's it's the the physiology, the psychology, the sociology, your business feedback, everything is trying to guide you back into authenticity, which is an expression of their very highest value. The a priori value. The thing that makes you jump out of bed in the morning excited to do. Right? As as Buffett's yeah. Buffett's like ninety something, right? And <laughs> and and, and his, his buddy, right, uh, is, is uh, Charlie, uh, you know, poor Charlie's almanac, Charlie Munger. He basically says he's at nearly 100. These guys are doing something they love to do. Which is good for your health as well, right? <laughs> yeah, it helps your health. So if you're not saying no to things that are lower in priority and saying yes to things that are, and finding a, a sustainable fair exchange of service for people because that's where fulfillment comes, you're missing out on the magnificence of what life offers, I think. Brilliant. Okay, and, and actually, like that could perhaps because you touched on some some points there that I think could lead to perhaps if you gave us a little definition of anxiety and depression, then maybe link in with that as well. Yeah, anxiety and depression are two different things, but anxiety 
is a secondary, tertiary, and quaternary compounding of an original event that you have chosen with your perceptions to see only negatives without positives too. <clears throat> so let's let's give an example. Let's take a <clears throat> let's say a mother and father are fighting at home. They're having a, a yelling match and a screaming match and even getting aggressive physically, gesturally. And the little year little over a year old baby is watching this and, and is anxious, fright, frightened. And it goes, runs and crawls over to its bed, gets underneath the bed and puts pillows around itself and blocks its ears, blocks its eyes and avoids hearing and, and seeing mommy and daddy fight. Then they go to the, 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 the child falls asleep, the parents fall asleep. The next morning, dad's at work. Mom takes the child to the grocery store. Now, the night before, dad was wearing blue jeans, white shirt. He has a brown hair and brown mustache. So the child is in the grocery store, and all of a sudden, a man's coming down the aisle towards mommy that's got blue jeans, white shirt, brown hair, brown mustache. And for some reason, he looks at that, and because of the Pavlovian operant conditioning Skinner's idea of association in the brain, he now mm. sees threat because he associated pain without pleasure last night with that view. Yeah. So now he sees this person wearing these clothes and he, and he gets in front of mom or gets behind mom, pulls mom away or gets in front to protect mom, looking over its shoulder and throw, creates these tantrums to try to decoy them from conflict. It's like a reaction to trauma, right? <laughs> yeah, then the, then the man walks by and the mom's like, you know, wondering why this, this kid's acting out all of a sudden. The guy walks by, it's safe, the kid looks over his shoulder, sees he's gone, relaxes, plays, everything's fine. They turn down another aisle, and now they see a guy with blue jeans, yellow shirt, brown hair, brown mustache. But now there's a yellow shirt. So the brain now associates yellow shirt also, because he's got blue jeans and brown hair, yellow's added. They go down another aisle, and now he throws a little bit of a tantrum. Next aisle, he goes around, he goes, uh, blue jeans, white shirt, blonde hair, blonde mustache. But because of blue jeans and white shirt, there's an association. Now there's blonde hair and blonde mustache, right? And so the next page, he goes, the next aisle he goes, now there's blue jeans, red shirt, brown hair, brown mustache. <laughs> the next aisle is blue jeans, uh, white shirt, brown hair, no mustache. As long as there's one or more of those associations for a painful experience, the brain can set up a, a mild sympathetic response of fight or flight to try to protect, and it, and it has this anxiety response and this fear response, which is an assumption there's going to be more negatives and positives, more pains and pleasures, more disadvantage and advantage about to happen. So there, that yeah. creates an anxiety. So now we get so many associations made, secondary, tertiary, quaternary associations, that now just walking around stimulates an anxiety response but it originates from that one fight that mommy and daddy had. It's such a good way of explaining it. I love this. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's really, really good. Good explanation. And also depression, maybe. Yeah. So now depression is different than anxiety. And depression is a comparison of your current reality to a fantasy, a delusion, an unrealistic expectation you keep holding on to. So let's say that when somebody comes and they say, well, I'm clinically depressed. Okay, great. So depressed about what? And they'll go, I don't know. No, it's not true. You can never have an emotion without content in the mind. You can't have fear of the unknown. You can't have guilt of the unknown. You can't have depression of the unknown. You can have depression about content that you're expecting that's not lived up to. 
because it's an unmet expectation. Usually depression has anger and aggression, blame and betrayal, criticism and challenge, despair and depression, exit and es escape, futility and frustration, grouchiness and grief, hatred and hurt, irritability and irrationality, and jadedness and jerk feelings. I call them the ABCDFGHIJs of negativity. <laughs> so what happens is if, if you ask them, so if, they, if your mom had been there, instead of abandoning you in your mind, what would have been the drawback? Mm. Oh, there'd be no drawback. Life would have been happy. Well, that's a delusion. If your mom had been there, it'd yeah. be a new set of pains and pleasures. Because I got people that are angry because their mom was there and smothering them. And you now are angry because your mom wasn't there and didn't smother you. So you have this fantasy that it would be better. And that fantasy is the reason why you're depressed, because you're comparing a balanced life of reality to a fantasy that's imbalanced. So I basically say, well, what if your mother was there? What would be the drawback? I can't see any. I can't think of any. Well, then one of you're depressed because life is compared, compared to a fantasy. So I help them see their downsides of what their mother did. And then I help them find the benefits of what's happening and how it's serving them and how is it helping fulfill what they value most. And once we balance it out, the depression's not there. And they can blame in biochemical imbalance and serotonin uptake inhibitor <laughs> deficiencies and all kind of crap. And I just neutralize these week after week after week by the hundreds. You restore the chemical balance, right? <laughs> it's like the chemical imbalance is there for a reason. Yes, because as long as you have an imbalanced ratio of perceptions, you're going to have an imbalanced ratio of neurochemistry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's one of the things I talk about loads of the Marcus Aurelius um, podcast. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's one of those, I think it's quite amazing, actually, when I went back and looked at these, these books, it's like there are people like the, I know, obviously, he learned a lot from the ancient Greeks, they figured a lot of this stuff out, like in, in a weird, in a, in a strange sense, not necessarily with all the science that we perhaps have now, you know, they obviously didn't understand the chemicals in the brain and everything else. But they did kind of like, they did touch on this back then. I, I don't know if you ever stumbled across it the same way, but... He was trying to warn people about going after a hedonistic pursuit of immediate gratification, which cost people their lives, instead of having an yeah. objective view and a balanced view and mitigating the risks and making sure you calm down your fantasies and make sure you set real objectives in life. It's common sense. It's brilliant. But most people don't. They just mm. want immediate gratification. They want a happy without a sad, a pleasure without a pain. And look at all the moral hypocrisies that were taught from childhood, from mothers, fathers, preachers, and teachers. Be nice, don't be mean. Be kind, don't be cruel. Be positive, don't be negative. Be generous, don't be stingy. They're trying to make you one-sided. There is no human being on this mm. planet that's one-sided. And people are living in a delusion and a fantasy and an unrealistic expectation that they're supposed to be one-sided. A peace without war, nice without mean, kind without cruel. I'm not a nice person. I'm not a mean person. I'm an individual with a set of values. If you support my values, I'm nice as a pussycat. You challenge my values, I can be mean as a tiger. I'm a human being. And until you can love yeah. all of your human being and quit being addicted to a fantasy that's not obtainable, you're going to end up being depressed. And I tell, I tell people, just like the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that's unavo what's unavoidable is a source of human suffering. And we live in a delusion most of the time, a fantasy about how life's supposed to be, and instead of honoring the magnificence of how it actually is. And I think that's um, and a brilliant thing that I learned from you as well, actually, in um, what relates to the values and stuff as well. But like if you're... Um, uh, you're, no one's always sort of confident no one's always kind no one's always unkind and what have you but let's say you were trying to do these other things let's say you thought I do need to get better at cooking I do need to get better at driving and everything else is that not going to there's going to be an offset of that into the things that you're really good at is there not? Yeah well, you're going to dilute your energies into something that's not the idea that you said I need to means it's an outside imperative 
based on a comparison to somebody else and an mm. injected value from somebody else, which Freud called the superego. And that's the moralizing force. We go around and say we should do this, we ought to do this, instead of just doing what we really are inspired to do that is meaningful, that makes a difference in the world. And then we feel like we're getting to do what we love. We don't have to do it because we don't feel like we ever have to do it. It's not a matter of have to. I don't have to do teaching. I could go and lay at my pool and on my ship here and just travel around the world if I want to do it, but I, that doesn't mean anything to me. What means to me is sharing ideas that make a difference in people's lives and watching the light bulbs go on and then the trajectories of people's lives change. That's meaningful. So I'd rather go fill my life doing something that's meaningful, that's inspiring, and hmm. I love doing. That's To me, that's an inspired life. Brilliant. And what I want to do now, if it's okay, is just try and tie this in with, with some science, talking about different parts of the brain, um, chemical reactions and what have you. So um, perhaps like a, a, somewhere to start with this is if you could just give your thoughts on physical health in relation to the difference of someone living by their values and someone who's living against their values, so to speak how that can like, manifest in your physical anytime, health in the long term. Anytime you're prioritizing your life and living by the highest values, your blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain. Your forebrain is more able to see objectively. As Wilhelm Wundt, the father of modern experimental psychology, said, able to see simultaneous contrasts, simultaneous opposites at the same time. And therefore, instead of having a subjectively biased interpretation of reality and skewing things into a survival mentality of impulse and instinct and seek and avoid and good and bad and right and wrong and that kind of stuff. It sees relativity and, and grayness. It's able to see both sides. When it does, it's more resilient, it's more adaptable, and distress is the inability to adapt to a changing environment. Now you're more stressful, not distressful, more resilient, more adaptable. You're willing to embrace both pleasure and pain in the pursuit of something deeply meaningful and you're going after something purposeful, you're more objective, you're more your, your identity is revolves around it, because in Scientific American, October edition 2022, there's a great article on the medial prefrontal cortex, which lights up when you're living by priority, and this is the seat of the self, the integrated portions of the brain. And if you're not living by priority, and you're living by lower priorities, because you're comparing yourself to others and injecting values into your life and trying to be somebody you're not, your blood glucose Glucose and oxygen goes into the, the amygdala and the limbic area of the brain, which is emotional, which wants to avoid predator and seek prey, avoid pain, seek pleasure. And you now activate the hedonistic pursuit of immediate gratification instead of long-term vision. And so what happens is that you're now setting up a fantasy, and then you get sideswiped by the other side of the equation because it's like getting a one-sided magnet and expecting the other half of the magnet not to be there. And you get, you get hit by your shadow, as Jung would call it. And then you keep attracting the things you don't want because you're wanting a one-sided world, and now you have distress. And when you have distress, your autonomics go into imbalance, and you create symptomatology and epigenetic alterations in your physiology and cell function and genetic expression that you create symptoms. And the symptoms are feedback to the brain to let you know that you have an imbalanced racial perception. You're not living by priority, and it's trying to get you to live by priority and authenticity. So your symptoms aren't your enemy. Your symptoms are your friend if they're properly interpreted, but we cover them up with, with medication palliatively. And we're not, the, the, the healing arts right now are not dedicated to curing and, and making people aware of what's going on. They're just palliative and they're covering things up and keeping you from actually learning what they really mean. And that's the thing I, I've been Brilliant. studying the mind-body stuff for 45 years clinically. 
and I'm amazed at how applied physiology and applied, uh, you know, cell functions are giving us feedback. If we go out and pig out and we really overeat and we wake up with indigestion and bloat and cramps and oily face and tired and fatigued, those aren't symptoms of disease. Those are symptoms of health. That's a healthy response to overeating. And we've misinterpreted it. We now take digels and take antacids and we take antiflaxlins and we take antihistamines and we take all this stuff and suppress it instead of learn what it's trying to teach you on how to live and how to live wisely and how to live by priority. I think with my sort of background, a lot of like working like health and fitness, like I've noticed that people are much more receptive to seeing like issues with their diet, issues with exercise, like having an effect on their physical health. But I don't think people just, I feel they're becoming more aware of it. But um, I don't think people quite appreciate just how big, like, their emotional state, particularly stress, is, you know, on your long-term physical health. Um, do you go, do, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Any judgment you have that remains polarized, the amygdala assigns valency to it and stores it in the hippocampus. The hippocampus is sort of like the storage area in space and time of the, all the things that we've distorted in our subjective awareness and when we do it creates reverberating circuits in the brain noise in the brain because anybody who's been highly infatuated and trying to sleep at night can't sleep anybody who's highly resentful at night can't sleep think about trying to go to sleep when you're really raging mm. angry or when you're really infatuated with somebody can't sleep because those highly polarized states are basically imbalanced in the brain and there's all this noise and static in the brain the moment you bring those back into balance, you have restful sleep. You sleep well. A lot of insomnia is that, just a bunch of noise in the brain because yeah. of stored, subconsciously stored and distorted realities. Now, anything that's stored in the hippocampus there that's emotionally charged is there to protect us from predator and, pre and to help us get prey. It's a survival response. And it's sitting there and stored there and it will stay there for indefinitely for the rest of your life until you bring it to balance and see both sides of it. You know, if you get prey without predator, you get fat, gluttonous, and lose fitness. If you get predator without prey, you get emaciated, starved, and lose fitness. If you get a balance of prey and predator, a balance of support and challenge, a balance of pairs of opposites, which the Stoics said, the balance of pairs of opposites, you get wellness. <laughs> so yeah, people are brilliant. searching in their amygdala okay. for one side of the world, trying to escape the other one and undermining their very wellness looking for immediate gratification and as a result of it there are people out there that love to sell the fantasy to people who are gullible enough to buy the fantasy <laughs> and that's a multi-billion or trillion dollar industry and it's the leading cause of disease yeah. death and dying by the way thank you for that that's brilliant <laughs> um okay gonna lighten it a little um, I know earlier on you you touched on it as well the uh, meeting first um, sort of hearing Paul Bragg talk um, I know in the values fact of the book you mentioned it as well was your intuition said we saw the fly your intuition said that you had to go um, for what I do know of you I may be wrong but I can imagine that you wanted to understand why your intuition probably told you something like that um, is that something that you've looked into a bit more? Any thoughts on what intu yeah, where intuition like that kind of comes from? I have from? devoured that topic as thoroughly as probably anybody. I've been interested in that topic for a long time, five decades. So yeah. this is my summary of intuition. 
when you're a woman and you meet a guy and you are subjectively biased in your interpretation because you assume that there's more upsides and downsides and you're drawn and impulsively and attracted to them and you're infatuated with them and enamored with them your intuition is trying to whisper the downsides don't be gullible keep your eyes open guys too good to be true don't be don't don't assume he's got nothing hmm. challenging so the intuition is always trying to reveal to you what you're unconscious of and what you're ignoring in your perceptions. So if you're perceiving an, uh, a fatal attraction like Michael Douglas and Glenn Close, and he's seeing the positives, his intuition is trying to whisper the negatives, but his impulse sometimes is stronger than his intuition, and it overrides it, and he ignores it. And then he ends up going, oops, and then he finds out that it's Glenn Close, and she tries to stab him. <laughs> Right. We've all been in a relationship like that yeah. to some degree. And if we resent somebody and we're seeing only the downsides and not seeing the upside, our intuition is trying to whisper the upsides. There's got to be a reason why this is happening. There's got to be a purpose behind this. There can't be, a, you know, there must be a reason why I met with this person. Why am I with this person? You know, that kind of thing. So the intuition is always trying to reset the homeostasis. It's a negative feedback loop filled with thousands yeah. <laughs> of feedback, neurological feedback systems, introceptive and extraceptive feedback systems from the viscera and from the soma. They're feedback systems trying to get the brain back into homeostasis to maintain stability. Because when you're infatuated, you minimize yourself and you're not yourself. When you're resentful, you exaggerate yourself, you're not yourself. And this homeostatic mechanism of intuition is trying to get you to be yourself. It's trying to maximize your potential. Yeah, so that intuition can actually, it doesn't just need to relate to people in the example that you just gave. It can actually relate to like events, right? Like a, a bit like you seeing the, you know, your intuition saying, you need to go to this seminar, right? It's perhaps like balancing, um, well, trying to bring your body back into homeostasis from where you were at that the time. The difference is there's a gut impulse is to seek something you think is going to give you an advantage. A gut instinct is to avoid something you think is going to give you a disadvantage. An intuition is trying to show you that within the advantage, there's disadvantage, and within the disadvantage, there's advantage, to yeah. try to see you see both sides of things, because when you see both sides of things, it doesn't run you. When you see only one yeah. side of it, it runs you. You're extrinsically run instead of intrinsically run. That's why I said in The Secret, when the voice and the vision on the inside is louder than all opinions on the outside, you master your life. So your intuition is doing it. Now, some people have misconstrued what intuition is. They think it's some sort of esoteric thing. It's some sort of spiritual thing. But what it is, is just nothing more than a homeostatic mechanism in the brain, an intro-extroceptive homeostatic feedback system to try to get you back into the center where you see the synthesis of opposites, like the dialectic that Hegel and, and Zeno used, to try to get you into that spiritual awareness of perfect thank you. To see the order. I call it seeing the hidden order in the apparent cast. Claude Shannon says that when you're infatuated with somebody and you're ignoring the downside, you're missing information, the downside. When you're resentful and you're missing the upside, you're missing that information. When you're mindful, you're not missing information. You're seeing both sides simultaneous. So intuition is trying to help you become mindful, trying to help you see resourceful and not let you be run by the external world, which are misinterpretations, which are survival systems. Once you're centered, you don't have intuition. You have inspiration. So intuition is leading you to an inspired state, which is your highest value, where you're most authentic. That's, that's wonderful.
Absolutely brilliant. And, and also, it's funny this, you, you would think that the body has like just about everything that we need to bring us into homeostasis uh, mentally and physically, wouldn't you? <laughs> I, I read a book, a, a 1932 book by Claude Shannon. I mean, probably, but Walter Cannon. And um, Claude Shannon also wrote about the internal milieu of homeostasis, but Walter Cannon wrote a book called The Wisdom of the Body. It was about that. And I love this little book. It's a simple book. It's fast reading. I read it when I was 23 years old. And I just started devouring everything there was on, on how feedback systems worked in the brain, in the body. Mm. And I now realize that what we've called intuition is nothing more than all of the uh, ma- massive amounts of feedback systems. You know, we, we're all familiar with the feedback system of temperature, right, our hypothalamus. Mm. If our temperature goes up, we sweat. If it goes down, we, we you know, yeah. shiver. So, and we, 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 the water cools the temperature and this kind of thing. So... We know that. That's, a, that's an obvious one. But that's just one. We also have a blood sugar. If the blood sugar goes up, right, or goes down, we get glucagon, or it, it, get, taking it up, and insulin to bring it back down. And, and so these are, these are feedback systems that are done by signal molecules and reflexes uh, from not only nerves but endocrine glands and cells and tissues to try to bring homeostasis for a perturbed world on the outside to bring it back into a stable one on the inside. So if we go and study those, we'll find out that intuition is nothing more than a culmination of all of those feedback systems maintaining homeostasis, but impacting brain's awareness. Because we know even the microbiome, with our microbiology that sits in there, and the immune system that was used to be thought, uh, you know, as uh, trying to stop us from having infections, the immune system is now known to be the seventh sense, and it is basically monitoring the microorganisms that are all over the body, all different types of microorganisms, and making sure that they're there keeping a balance between build and destroy because they're biologically essential in our body. We have to have those microorganisms. So it's there to homeostate it and tell the brain when it's out of whack and it changes the autonomics, changes the, the secretions, changes the serous fluids, changes the pH, to change the bacteria, to bring us back into homeostasis. So all the cells in our body, all the physiology in the body, all the microorganisms in the body, our friends in sociology with the criticisms and praises, our symptoms, everything is trying to get us authentic. All of our business uh, symptoms in our business are feedbacks to do that. Brilliant. It's wonderful. Um, I'm conscious we do need to wrap this up, so I'm going to do a couple of shorter, quick-fire questions almost, if you like. <laughs> um, what are you most proud of in your life? I dedicate my life not for pride. I don't, I'm not interested in pride. I think pride is, is a, not an authentic state. I'm a man on a mission. I'm not interested in being proud of anything, not interested in being successful. Um, I find that those, those are signs. That th- those two things draw in homeostatic mechanisms to get you back into authenticity. I'd rather be grateful. I'd rather be loving. I'd rather be inspired. I'd rather be enthused. I'd rather be present. I'd rather be certain about my path than proud or shamed. Because we, when any time we go into pride, we create a licensing effect for shame. If you go out and work out, you feel like, oh, I just did a workout. You give yourself permission to eat more chocolate, more eating, and everything else to, <laughs> to balance it, to homeostate you. Hmm. So I don't have any dedication to pride. I don't have any interest in having pride on anything because it interferes with my mission. That's such a good answer. Thank you. <laughs> um, what are you working on at the moment? We can just give one, one example, one area. I'm, I'm working on my neurology text. Right now, it's 821 pages. It'll be about 900 pages when I'm done. I'll have it finished by November next next month. 
and that's one book. I've worked on another book on the nine steps to financial freedom. That's that's also another book. But I'm researching every day and speaking every day and podcasting. We have a new movie that's coming out. I have actually three movies this year coming out, but one new one coming uh-huh. out next year in May that's about my work, which I'm very inspired by. Uh, very grateful for the opportunity that people put that together. That's amazing what they did. And um, Excellent. But these are things... These are things that, that, you know, spontaneously emerge in your life when you're doing something you love. I, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. I just start spontaneously emerging. But I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be able to go and review my neurology because I taught neurology when I was 24 years old in professional school. Yeah. And I've, I've been loving neurology in the brain. I've been studying that all these years. So I finally put another bigger textbook together on it. Excellent. Um, it's interesting what you just said then, actually, because um, I obviously I could have at any point over all these years reached out to do something like this. And I've only done the podcast for a couple of years, but it was literally I woke up one day, I had this feeling inside, I've got to ask John Martini if I can do an interview. So <laughs> that was the day that I actually reached out uh, to patients and, uh, and uh, uh, organized this. So, yeah, very true. <laughs> you know, every time, you know, you ask these questions and we get to share ideas or whatever, there's bound to be somebody out there, at least one, that that lights up a little idea in their head. And so the basic the commitment of, of going out and sharing this podcast and being able to be on this podcast is it both helps both of us fulfill what we love doing. So thank you. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. Um, and I really, really hope it sets some light bulbs off for many listeners. I'm sure it will, actually, just because of the content of the show. So um, last one, then. <laughs> what books are currently on your desk? Pardon me? What books are currently on your desk? Right this minute. <laughs> yeah, I know it probably changes daily like mine do, but... <laughs> it's like Peter Britannica. Sometimes I will just stop, pull out my Britannica, read 10 to 15 pages or something, stop, contemplate on it, put it together, do it. So I'm constantly reading Britannica, I'm constantly reading great books, and that goes on every single day. Excellent. Okay. Um, John, um, thank you ever so much for, for doing this. Um, guys, um, John, if you want to direct anyone anywhere, feel free to do so. But um, I know you're, you're everywhere. Um, your books are absolutely wonderful. I've also done the Breakthrough Experience in person myself. I'd highly recommend it to anyone listening. Um, but do you have any final words that you'd like to say before we wrap things up? Just, you know, the magnificence of who you are, your authentic self, is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose on yourself. So don't allow an impostered facade from your comparison of other people to interfere with a deep, meaningful pursuit that's really called inside you. And identify what your values are. Go to the website, drdmartini.com, and take advantage of a complimentary value determination process that's private for you. Thousands of people do that, um, and it, it, it helps people set real goals in real time with real objectives to have real achievements. And just know that no matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love. Don't buy into the bull, the bull out there of the moral hypocrisies. Get on with doing what you're really called to do. Don't let somebody else's opinion about you interfere with what you know you're here to do. And um, shine, don't shrink. That's brilliant. Um, Dr. John D. Martini, thank you very much for being on the show. No, thank you. Appreciate the, the opportunity to be here.